Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Chelsea Finn. Chelsea is an assistant professor of computer science at Stanford University. Chelsea, welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. All right. So we have not spoken since uh, it's been quite a while. You were at Berkeley at the time. It was back in June of 2017 for Twimble Talk number 29. We're over 300 shows now. So quite a while. Before we jump into our focus for this conversation, which is a look back at 2019 and all the exciting developments in reinforcement learning, why don't you catch us up on what you've been up to over the past couple of years? Yeah, so I, I finished my, my, my dissertation at UC Berkeley. Now I'm an assistant professor at Stanford. And I guess in my research, some of the things I've been really thinking about recently are how we can build uh, machine learning systems and especially embodied systems such as robots that can generalize to different objects, to different environments, to different settings. Uh, and this is through the lens of, of reinforcement learning algorithms as well as what's called meta-learning algorithms where you try to accumulate previous experience in a way that allows you to quickly learn new things or quickly adapt to new settings rather than trying to learn from scratch for every new thing that you might want to do. Mm-hmm. So my um, my group in, at Stanford has been starting to study some of these problems in, in generalization and reinforcement learning and, and robotics. And uh, yeah, excited to be on the show today. Nice. And you're also teaching a course at Stanford now on meta learning. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm teaching a new course uh, that is just wrapping up. We have our last class on Monday uh, of next week. And then after actually after the course, all of the videos are going to be available online for the public to see all the videos of the lectures. Oh, that's fantastic. That that is fantastic. Uh, So the the format of this particular conversation is going to be uh, again, focused on 2019 and review and uh, reinforcement learning. Before we jump into the specific papers or topics that uh, you thought were interesting this year, can you kind of characterize the year for us, you know, relative to other years that you've been uh, following RL? You know, how was how 2019 shaped up? Yeah, I think that research and reinforcement learning has really been picking up and there have been an increasing interest in it. So so there are more labs that were traditionally focusing on supervised learning or unsupervised learning that are now um, going into this setting where agents need to make multiple decisions and people have different motivations for doing that. But I think that really the field is is expanding and that's been an exciting time. Uh, and also with that expansion, I think that people have been Study on a study a broader range of reinforcement learning problems. So before people were kind of narrowly focused on on a few benchmarks, and I think that now um, that is opening up, and people are kind of reconsidering different formulations and different problem settings within the context of reinforcement learning. Uh, and and with that, there's also been some of the same big players that have been trying to advance uh, the capabilities of our reinforcement learning systems uh, as well. So I think that the um, there's been uh, progress on a lot of fronts, and it's been a, a pretty exciting year. Now, the benchmarks that have traditionally been used in RL, at least the ones that come to mind most immediately for me, are video games. Um, And in particular, historically, it's been kind of simple Atari-style video games, but these have been getting a lot more complex over over time. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big focuses in reinforcement learning has been looking at Atari games. And there still were, um, there still actually were some really interesting progress made on those benchmarks. But I think that also a lot of research has been opening up and focusing on other problems as well. Another very common benchmark in previous years has been the um, these, these continuous control tasks of these simulated robots in the Majoko physics uh, engine. Mm-hmm. And uh, using this like OpenAI Gym, for example. An example uh, of that would be like the cart pole. Um, things like cart pole, but also uh, what's called the half cheetah uh, or the ant, which is actually a four-legged uh, creature. These types of um, locomotion, simulated locomotion tasks. Ah, okay. And so these are we'll see these videos with uh, you know an agent essentially learning to walk or trying to get from one place to another most efficiently. Those types of yeah, benchmarks. Exactly. Got it. Okay. 
All right, awesome. So uh, your task in preparing for this session is to come up with a, a few or was to come up with a few papers that you thought were significant. You, in fact, came up with topics, uh, some of which had multiple papers that you thought were really interesting. Why don't we just jump in and have you walk us through these? Yeah, so I think that it, in, there's often never just one single paper that really solidifies um, and a result, there's often many, many multiple results that actually really uh, show you what has been, what is capable, and and what you can, uh, what these algorithms are capable of, and and what these, um, what can be done with our current technology. And so that's why I wanted to focus on these different topics because I think that there are, um, it's not just one one paper for each thing. So the kind of the first thing that I wanted to highlight was thinking about um, reinforcement learning in the real world. So. Uh, there's been some pretty impressive progress on reinforcement learning on real robots for dexterous manipulation tasks. So think like a five-fingered hand that can do things such as uh, turn turn Rubik's Cube size or can manipulate two uh, what's called bowing balls in, this, in the palm of the hand and rotate them uh, with a single hand. Uh, and so we've seen reinforcement learning algorithms that are able to learn uh, both of these very dexterous manipulation tasks with five-finger hands uh, in the real world. So one and but one of the things that was interesting, there was actually two papers that that showed these uh, these results. One that actually trained completely in simulation and then tried to transfer what was learned in simulation to the real robot, and one which learned completely in the real world and was actually efficient enough to uh, to run in the real world. And so one of the things that I found really uh, exciting about these results is it showed the sort of complexity that we could learn in in the real world uh, using reinforcement learning algorithms. And it was interesting to see how divergent the two approaches were for accomplishing uh, somewhat similar objectives. How would you characterize the divergent nature of these two approaches? What were the key things that they did uh, differently? Yeah, so the the key thing was simulation versus real. So one okay, of them okay. was, and it's, it's, I guess a little bit more of that, one of them was trying to take a really powerful reinforcement learning method and train it in a variety of different simulated settings in a way that allowed it to transfer to the real world. And one was extremely focused on efficiency. So if you're running on a real robot, a five-fingered hand that is a bit fragile, it isn't something that you can really put a lot of wear and tear on, uh, then you need to be extremely efficient. You need to be learning in a way that uh, you don't break the hand in the process of reinforcement learning. Uh, so And so the kind of two algorithms that were developed here were uh, in many ways just like completely different from each other, but yet achieved a kind of similar result in the real world. And the the Rubik's Cube paper, that's a relatively uh, recent one in, in the year, uh, and that was some results by OpenAI, and those caused a bit of a stir in the community uh, in part because of the way, or at least the perception that they were kind of overhyped or over-marketed. Um, that the results they presented were overhyped or overmarketed. Did you do you have a take on that? Yeah. So the I think that the the concern was that the kind of the title of of the approach or of the blog post um, was about solving Rubik's cubes uh, using reinforcement learning, and what they were actually doing was they were using a Rubik's cube solver and then figuring out how you could do the um, so they were using a Rubik's cube solver to figure out which face to turn in which way. Uh, and, and just and so that kind of was in some ways pre-specified. And then the reinforcement learning part was figuring out how you can turn that face with a physical hand. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was uh, this was a bit controversial because it was uh, people got the impression that they were learning all of the moves of solving the cube with reinforcement learning and not just the physical aspect of it. Um, in many ways, I actually think that the physical aspect of it, while it seems like it should be simpler, because we are like basic manipulation skills are so intuitive and basic to us. Uh, it, I, I think that actually in reality, these this sort of physical contact is actually much harder than uh, than solving the Rubik's Cube. We, we've had solvers for Rubik's Cubes for a very long time. Right. This is one of the first times that we've actually seen a robotic robotic hand be able to have the dexterity that allows us allows it to rotate one of the faces. Well, and there are so many more degrees of freedom with the uh, hand than the cube itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was some controversy there, and also just generally the way that um, things were handled uh, with like the press and everything, because they also put a significant effort into uh, producing a video and uh, like marketing the work. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas in contrast, a lot of research labs 
uh, don't do that, uh, as you might expect. So there was also some controversy there. For the record, we'll include links to all of these papers uh, in the show notes. The ones we just spoke about were Solving Rubik's Cube with a Robot Hand and Deep Dynamics for Learning Dexterous Manipulation. Yeah, and the second paper was um, by Anusha Nagabandi, who is a, a PhD student at UC Berkeley and was doing an internship at Google Brain at the time. Okay. Great, great. So uh, lots of progress on applying reinforcement learning to manipulating uh, physical objects with robotic hands. Uh, What's next? Yeah, so what's next to me is, so the the second approach that we talked about uh, by Anusha was using a technique called model-based reinforcement learning, where you learn a dynamics model of the world and then you do reinforcement learning using that dynamics model to optimize uh, a policy or to optimize over actions. And so... Um, this kind of approach in general, I think, has in some ways received less attention by the machine learning community than model-free reinforcement learning methods. Uh, but this year, I think that we actually saw an in- increased interest in model-based reinforcement learning methods. And, and one of the reasons why people do like to use them is they tend to be more sample efficient. Uh, but the challenge is, if you're in a vision-based domain, if you only see images, if you only see image pixels as your observations, then in principle, learning a model involves potentially even predicting pixels forward into the future, like learning a video prediction model, and that can be very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this year we saw some some real, some real progress, I think, on model-based reinforcement learning on vision-based domains. One approach that uh, predict pixels into the future, so I was actually learning a video prediction model and showed how you could use this uh, for things like Atari games, and one which bypassed the need to predict pixels by predicting in a latent representation uh, predicting forward in a latent representation learned by a neural network uh, and using that latent representation to predict things like the future values and the actions of a policy. And so I guess one of the things that that I was really impressed by and thought was interesting with these uh, two works is that it really showed the viability of model-based reinforcement learning as an approach, even for some of the benchmarks that have been so heavily studied by model-free approaches. Um, So I think that there, there are a number of benefits of model-based, and I w- wasn't necessarily thinking that those benefits would come on things like like Atari, for example, uh, but we were able to see significant progress from from these works on uh, on those domains. In the case of the Atari work, what does a model look like in that context? Yeah, so for the first paper, the model was actually generating images into the future. So it's a big neural network. Um, it's uh, fully convolutional. It So it's basically taking in an input frame, it uh, produces convolutional feature maps uh, and, and, and produces a representation and then has deconvolutions to produce the next image of the, and it also takes as input the action to produce the next image. So it's trying to predict what will the next image or the next sequence of images look like uh, given the current image and uh, a sequence of actions. And then that future predicted image becomes additional input to the RL learner? So yeah, so the, then that, that image you can use to, to essentially generate more data for your reinforcement learner. So instead of always taking actions in the real environment, you could also take actions in this learned environment and use that to improve your policy. Sometimes when we use model-based approaches, the model isn't necessarily a learned model. Is it a learned model in both of these cases? Yeah, so in both of these cases, it is a learned model. There's um, a field, especially prominent in robotics, called model-based control that typically assumes that you know the model of the environment. And I guess it's not always it's not just in robotics as well. There are a number of approaches where it assumes that you know the model, you know the kind of the true simulation of your system, right. and you use that that known simulation in order to learn the task. And in many ways, uh, in Atari, it's a little bit. Uh, in some ways, a little bit silly to to actually learn the model because you actually have the real simulation system. Um, but I think that in many ways, the, the reason why people care about these approaches that actually learn the model is that it means that it's applicable in settings such as the real world where you don't know the model. And so in both of these cases, are is the the approach essentially the same where you're using model to predict images into the future? So the first one is predicting images into the future, and the second one is actually predicting other quantities into the future. So it's predicting things like values, um, rewards, and actions uh, into the future. Uh, so, and this is all—all all of these predictions are conditioned on some latent representation. So you can think of it as predicting the only the, the the quantities that are relevant for the game. 
um, but in some latent representation, rather than having to predict all of the pixels, which include things that aren't necessarily relevant to doing well on the game. Got it. And so the pixels that you're predicting here might be pixels that represent uh, things on the screen that are specific to specific to actions that might be taken, like, I don't know, a score or some kind of um, trying to come up with a good example of what that might be. But, uh, you know, specific symbols on the screen or are we out of is the model predicting out of pixel space? Yeah. So in the second one, it's not actually predicting in at all in the pixel space. It's it's basically has a neural network that takes us and put the image and produces a a vector, a representation, and then it predicts that representation forward rather than predicting the pixels. But the fundamental in, in both of these cases, we're starting from vision and pixels and using that to. Um, using models based on these pixels to kind of inform a, an RL learner, an RL agent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And so the next category that you wanted to cover is focused on batch off policy RL. What is that? Yeah. So, and actually the next two topics are focusing really on generalization in reinforcement learning in a way. So what batch off policy RL is, is say that you have, so I guess, Let's first talk about kind of the standard reinforcement learning setting. So in the standard reinforcement learning setting, your agent collects some data, you learn from that data, then you collect some more data, you learn from that data, and you you iterate this process. Uh, and what off-policy reinforcement learning methods are, are methods that, I guess, I'll, maybe I'll start with on-policy methods. On-policy methods, they collect data, learn from that data, and then they throw away that data and collect a new batch of data and learn. And so they're always collecting data from their current their current policy, their current actor, and um, they can't, they don't have a way to reuse any data that they collected previously because they need the data to be from their current policy. Now, off policy methods are ones that can actually leverage data that they collected from previous policies. They're ones that can leverage what's called off policy data, pol- data that's not from your current policy, your current behavior. Uh, and these algorithms tend to be a lot more efficient because you don't, you're not throwing away data at every single uh, iteration of your algorithm. Now, batch off policy RL algorithms take this to an extreme where they assume that you actually are just given a batch of data from some from some policy from according to some behavior and then try to learn from that. And they don't have any ability to collect more data in that environment. And the reason why this is really uh, important and interesting is that first, if you think of just the majority of machine learning, you consider like you often have settings where you have some data set, maybe something like ImageNet. You're just given a batch of data and you want to learn from that data. And if we have algorithms that can just learn behaviors and learn policies from a batch of data, that means that we can start uh, just accumulating very large and diverse data sets and allowing algorithms to learn from them without having to kind of have this iterative data collection process in the loop. Um, And the second reason why it's important is that if uh, there are a number of settings where it's just it's unsafe uh, or not possible to collect more data, such if you imagine, for example, um, wanting to learn how to make medical decisions, you want to learn um, from data of doctor's decisions, or maybe you you have another system that's interacting with users in a way that isn't safe to take actions in like in in random ways, then you want to just be able to use data from doctors, for example, and learn from that data without having to experiment or collect more data uh, by kind of randomly taking actions or by exploring. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. Uh, one question I have is, does the the sequence of actions, is that necessarily included from or excluded from the typical problem setup for batch off policy RL? Yeah. So typically you do assume that you have the actions that were taken as well. So you know like what action or what decision the doctor made uh, in, in the medical decision-making example. Mm-hmm. Um, but one one quite interesting setting would be maybe you have some data with actions, but some data without actions, like you're just observing humans on the Internet doing stuff. Uh, and maybe you could try to learn how to manipulate objects from that data. And that's a, a setting that that some students in my lab have actually been studying recently. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that question was prompted by your uh, your idea that, you know, at some point we might just be able to take a. Uh, some collection of data and learn from it using a off policy RL agent. Um, But that that would seem to assume that there's some known sequence of actions that you'd have to have that. And that 
um, seems to make it less of a natural data set, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it is definitely less of a natural data set. Um, there are definitely settings, though, where you can directly observe the actions. Like, um, so you, in addition to the medical decision-making setting, you could imagine autonomous driving. Uh, you want to be able to learn how to drive a car. Uh, and you have a bunch of data of humans driving cars, uh, and you actually have sensors that measure uh, like the steering angle and the pressure on the gas pedal. Yeah, you have those sensors, then you can measure the actions that the that the human is taking. Okay, uh, so with with that background in mind, what were the specific advancements in the couple of papers you identified on this topic? Yeah, so I guess getting back to benchmarks, we actually don't have really good. Uh, benchmarks for this setting that actually have meaningful real-world settings. But the algorithms themselves showed uh, a lot of promise towards enabling uh, good learning in these settings. So the first one actually took the replay buffer of an agent on Atari. And when they only took this replay buffer, they were actually able to um, outperform the policy in that replay buffer uh, just by learning from that data. And so that that result, I think, was was quite impressive uh, and also is just a suggestion that we we should be able to learn very well from these, these types these types of data if we set up our algorithms well. Um, and then the second approach, uh, which actually the, the second paper that I linked, which actually predates the first one, um, also showed quite strong results. They weren't looking uh, at the Atari domain. Um, they were looking more at these continuous control domains, but they also showed the ability to learn behavior from um, from these kind of batches of data, uh, not to, not quite to the extent of, of the replay buffer, if I remember correctly, uh, but we're showing pretty strong results there. The paper that's looking at the replay buffer, the result seems counterintuitive. The, if I'm interpreting it correctly, you basically have this repre- replay data from a RL agent. Uh, so everything the agent kind of saw as it was exploring these games, and then you give it to another agent to learn off of, and the agent somehow performs better uh, than the original agent. But it doesn't see necessarily anything more than the original agent saw. Is it that it has access to all of it uh, at the same time, whereas the original agent only saw it in snapshots? So yeah, that's a good point. I think that the the reason is that they they didn't give it they didn't train the the first agent completely to convergence. They just took like um, they took a batch of the kind of the log data from that agent um, before it had like reached its max performance, and then showed that and and there thus there was some room for improvement. Um, and if you would give the online agent I think more data, it would have achieved the full the, the kind of maximum performance or, or would have achieved at least as well as the offline agent. Um, it was just that they kind of stopped things early and then wanted to test, can you do better with this, this batch of data? Um, this gets to the question of how should we set up these, these kind of the experiments with batch off policy reinforcement learning methods. I think that things like training on logged DQN data or, or logged data for, from Atari isn't a great um, experimental setup because it doesn't necessarily test the types, t- types of things that we want from um, these algorithms necessarily because we may not have that sort of data when we're learning um, when we're performing reinforcement learning in real world settings um, but it still I think is a step in the in the right direction and at least people are starting to study these kinds of problem settings and proposing benchmarks uh, for them yeah the second paper did we dig into the specifics of that one so I guess one of the reasons why I found it interesting wasn't just the kind of the results uh, but also, the visualizations and some of the, I think it provided an understanding of the problem um, in terms of understanding where, what we can do in, in these problem settings to do better. And basically what are the kind of sorts of things that we might uh, try to do and like in terms of solving this problem. So, so when you move from this kind of batch setting to, to a policy that you're learning from that batch of data, you have this distribution mismatch between the states and actions visited by the, the first policy in that batch of data and the states and actions visited by the policy that you're learning, the behavior that you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it provides some nice visualizations into understanding how we might try to handle this distribution mismatch. Uh, and in particular, they, they focus on the action setting, the, the distribution mismatch in the actions, uh, and, and made some nice visualizations for understanding what is actually happening under this distribution mismatch. And this distribution mis- mismatch is what they're calling the bootstrapping error? 
I believe so. Yes. Got it. You mentioned that the this work on batch off policy, as well as the the next paper that you had in mind, uh, RL with diverse offline data sets, uh, are kind of common in that they're both tackling generalization for RL. Um, that can mean a lot of things. In, in what sense uh, are these focused on generalization? Yeah. So I guess the, the the papers that we just talked about, they actually aren't really focused on generalization, but I think that if we build better batch off policy reinforcement learning methods, we'll have the ability to learn from more diverse data sets because we won't be collecting data for every, um, like within the context of our algorithm. So um, for example, in the context of, of robotics, say, if you want to generalize to something at the level of ImageNet, that would mean that you'd have to collect an ImageNet style, ImageNet diverse size data set in the context of your reinforcement learning experiment. And that just isn't practical, right? So we need to we need to think about how we can have algorithms accumulate data into a, a large data set and then actually start sharing um, sharing data uh, just like the rest of machine learning does. So if we can build these very large data sets by having robots collect data and then store that into a very large buffer of data and then have algorithms that can learn from that very large buffer of data without having to kind of recollect it in the loop of reinforcement learning, then then we can start to see the generalization that we see in supervised learning settings. So this next paper is actually trying to start to study that. Like, can we accumulate, can we build a very large and diverse data set and then learn from it? Is it too far of a stretch to say that this is kind of pointing us in the direction of a kind of a transfer learning type of approach as applied to RL? That's a good question. So in this particular paper, it is in, in many ways pointing at a, a transfer learning setting where you start, where you learn from this data set and then you learn representations for for control and then you take that representation and then try to transfer that to a new setting. Um, so it's analogous to ImageNet pre-training, for example. Like ImageNet, you can pre-train on the ImageNet data set and then fine tune your features to a new task uh, that allows you to transfer all of the rich uh diversity from ImageNet to your new problem setting. And we did something similar um, in this in this paper where we collected a very large data set, learned on it, and then transferred to new robots, transferred to new experimental setups. Mm -hmm. But so I think that it potentially points towards that. But I also think that we may be able to um, ideally be able to not just study transfer learning and also be able to just generalize in zero shot to new domains and new problems. Uh, and so this paper that we're talking about is RoboNet Large-Scale Multi-Robot Learning. If I remember correctly, you did some work in grad school at Google Brain on a kind of a large-scale parallel robot platform. Is this similar? Right. So the work back at Google in 2017 or like 2016, 2017, it was uh, actually parallelizing across uh, 10 robots at Google, but they were all the same robot platform in the same environment. And so if we want, if we care about, so it was really an important step towards, uh, towards this work here, but it wasn't, um, and, and in, in many ways served as the foundation for the work that we're doing uh, in this paper in RoboNet. The key question that we're trying to answer now is if we don't have 10 robots, like which most labs don't, my lab at Stanford does not have 10 robots. <laughs> uh, can we share data across institutions in a way that allows us to get the diversity of having multiple robots, of having many robots. And if we can think about having institutions and universities share data uh, across robots and across labs and across experimental setups, then we can get away from having each individual lab to have to collect their own like ImageNet size thing. What is the nature of the data that we're talking about sharing? Is this image data? Uh, is it some other type of data? Yeah. So in this paper, the data corresponded to trajectories of images and the actions the robot took. So it's essentially video plus a sequence of actions that corresponded to that uh, to that video, to that outcome of images. And, and is it video kind of off robot video or video from the perspective of a manipulator or uh, something else? Yeah. So we actually included multiple camera viewpoints in the data set such that some of them were somewhat of a first person's perspective. Some of them were more of a third person perspective, really corresponding to just different camera placements around the robot. And the total number of viewpoints we had in the data set was actually over 100. OK. Um, and the data set also included uh, it included data not just from like so in, in the Google data set, it was like 10, 10 robots, one robot platform. In this data set, it's around 
10 robots, but it's like seven robot platforms. So a significant diversity in actually the kinds of robots and the colors of the robots and the kinematics of the robots across um, across these different labs and across actually across four different institutions. Okay. And the specific learning objective in this uh, setup is what? Right. So that's where this is where off policy, batch off policy reinforcement learning methods come in. So if you have um, if you have all this data, you need to figure out how to learn from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, the good question is, like, what is the reward function? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what should you learn from this this sort of data Um, in this particular setting? We actually use model based reinforcement learning methods. So we were learning to predict video based off of the actions that the robot took. And then once we had this 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 model of the of the world, then we would actually use that model at test time to accomplish different tasks. So we would give it a, uh, we kind of give it a new task at test time, and then it would use its model to plan to a, um, plan to achieve that task using its learned model, rather than trying to um, learn a policy during uh, during training. So it actually is kind of uh, learning behavior on the fly at test time using its learned model. And then the kinds of tasks that we were testing on correspond to like manipulation tasks, like um, picking up a cup and positioning it next to other cups or pushing um, a pencil to be next to some other pencils. Okay. So in the case of a cup, you've got a model that you've learned off of the data set offline that has basically kind of built out a view of the world. If I do uh, take some action on the cup, the future world is probably going to look like this. And then uh, you then give a live robot access to this and it's also being trained in an RL. Is it, is it also an RL agent uh, that's training that uh, when it's live or is it some other kind of approach? It's so it's, it's not quite reinforcement learning. It's more just um, in, in some ways like model based control in some, in some ways as we were talking about before, but with the learned model. So it's, it's what's called planning. So if you have a model, if you know what, what kind of view, if you have an understanding of what will happen if you take some actions, mm-hmm. then you can use that model to plan a sequence of actions for trying to accomplish a goal. So, so more like an optimization goal. problem across the the likely outcomes from the model that you already have. Yeah, exactly. It's this, this optimization problem over actions given a goal and your model. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but one of the things that we're doing next is we're we're trying to look into if we can annotate rewards um, in the context of in this data set for different tasks. And then that would allow us to try to do some of this training, uh, do some of this optimization over policies, over behaviors at training time so that we could study algorithms like model free methods. And a reward, annotating a, a reward in this context means that if the goal is to stack cups, that the cup is, you know, a picture where the cup is stacked, or are we talking about something more elaborate than that? Yeah, it could be something like that. Um, and it may, one of the things that's a little bit challenging in the in robotics context is that if you have a picture of cups that are stacked, that doesn't mean that you actually have a good reward function for that. So it's actually hard to compare two images. Like if you have an image of cup stack, how do you know that another image also has cups stacked or, or also is achieving that goal in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we'd be thinking about is just really simple things like uh, label if an object is being grasped by the by the robot, like one if it's being grasped and, and zero otherwise, and then we could use that that reward function for grasping to learn a policy for grasping. Um, so we're thinking about very simple reward functions like that, like are there cups stacked in in this image or is the robot holding something, things like that. All right. So then the next couple of papers that you called out are focused on the the broad curriculum learning area. Um, what's been going on there? If I remember correctly, uh, we talked briefly about that a couple of years ago in that podcast we did. Yeah, I can't remember what we talked about a couple of years ago, if we talked about uh, curriculum learning or not. I but... think it was just a side note. OK, got it. Um yeah, so I, I, there were two curriculum learning, cur- curriculum-based approaches that I found to be quite interesting and exciting this year. Um, and in, in both of the cases, the agent was actually coming up with its own curriculum for solving tasks. So one of them was this paper from some folks at, uh, at Uber AI that was uh, actually using um, genetic algorithms and evolutionary methods to generate uh, increasingly complex environments for the agent to uh, learn in. So it was uh, a locomotion-based task where there was this agent, this legged robot in simulation that needed to move forward. And then it was generating uh, different 
different stepping stones and different environments uh, that made it more challenging for the robot to to traverse the terrain. And the mm-hmm. second one was a single environment, but the um, what it was trying to do, it was essentially trying to play a sort of a kind of a hide and seek game where there were some agents that were trying to that um, were trying to hide, and so they were given like five seconds or some some amount of time to like go hide, and then the seeker agents after that had to go try to find the agents that were hiding. And all of this was in simulation, but the one of the interesting things was that it would it kind of learned this sort of curriculum where initially the hiders were doing very uh, very obvious things that were pretty easy to find, uh, but then later they would actually start uh, making barricades and making it harder for the the seeker agents to actually go and find the hiders. So the curriculum was in that latter case, the learning agent was the hider or the finder. So in this case, actually, both the hider and the finder were learned. Okay. They were both being learned simultaneously. And the curriculum emerged simply from the fact that this was a multi-agent optimization. Mm-hmm. And so basically, as the, the first, the kind of hiders would learn some sophisticated behaviors, uh, and then they would be winning. And then the, the, the seekers or the finders would learn a, uh, would start to learn more sophisticated behaviors as well to go find them. And then you would have this kind of alternating thing where um, one of them like uh, starts winning and then the other agents will need to learn more sophisticated behaviors to overcome the types of um, strategies that the other set of agents learned. Right. It's probably worth taking a step back and, and kind of providing a high level overview of curriculum learning. Uh, as I understand it, again, I think from you, I think you were the first person that explained this to me. The idea is that in a, you know, any kind of scenario like that you might have a reinforcement learning agent in a big part of the problem is that the st- the state space is huge. Um, and, you know, that's not, not unlike how we as humans learn, you know, if we had to learn everything, you know, the possibilities are huge. So uh, in school, for example, we create a curricula that has us learn, you know, X, then Y, then Z. And uh, in doing so, that kind of creates a more narrow path for us to get through this, you know, the possibilities and curriculum learning is trying to do something similar where first you teach the agent to do the first thing, then you teach it to do like in the case of um, you know, some of these locomotion examples, you first, you teach it to crawl, then you teach it to stand up, then you teach it to run, then you teach it to jump, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Does it count as a, as curriculum learning if it's just something that the agent does without, you know, some special capability to learn curricula? Does that make sense? Particularly around that second example with the hiders and the, the seekers, uh, you know, what we're doing, we are kind of observing after the fact, you know, the things that these agents did and calling it curriculum learning. But was there something specific to the agent that, you know, made it uh, learn in that way? Or is that kind of orthogonal to the point anyway? Does it not matter? Yeah. So to me, I think that a curriculum is characterized by an increase in complexity. And if, if for the kind of at the beginning, you learn very simple things and at the end you're doing much more sophisticated and complex behaviors, then it seems like there's this, there's this progression of of simple to complex. In the case of um, the first paper, this was fairly explicit. In the case of the second paper, I think that this was more of an emergent property of the algorithm or an emergent property of this multi-agent optimization. And it wasn't necessarily something that was built in to the algorithm from the start. And I think that just this progression of, of, uh, from from very simple behaviors to very complex behaviors is the thing that's very exciting to me because it means that if we can if we can move from very simple behaviors to more complex behaviors then maybe we can also move from very complex behaviors to even more complex behaviors mm-hmm. uh, and and it seems like a, a path towards agents that are increasingly uh, sophisticated and increasingly intelligent and so from that perspective it doesn't matter to you whether you know, that's because of a training regime that has curricula built in that we create or whether it's just something that, you know, this complex that emerges in a complex system. Yeah. And I actually think that potentially it's, it's maybe even more exciting if it emerges or if the agent creates it itself, because mm-hmm. that means that it won't rely on us for moving to the next level. Uh, the next couple of papers were focused on exploration problems. Yeah. So 
these are kind of getting back to Atari land. Um, and in, in terms of the applications that they were studying, um, and in general, exploration is is kind of a a huge challenge in reinforcement learning. It's the problem of discovering uh, discovering the right thing to do uh, in settings where you're not given a lot of supervision, oftentimes, um, about what the right thing to do is. You basically need to explore your environment and find the parts of your environment, the parts of your state space that give you high reward. Mm-hmm. And the in, in the past, one of the kind of classic uh, problems or benchmarks in in exploration and reinforcement learning has been this Atari game called Montezuma's Revenge. I don't think it's the only uh, problem that we care about in the context of, of exploration, but it, it's one that has been notably, chal- notably uh, challenging for our current reinforcement learning systems. And these two papers were both, both proposed means for actually solving Montezuma's Revenge to a, 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 very, uh, a very large degree, um, scoring tens of thousands of points on this game, when I think previous Previous approaches were often only getting zero, like zero points, or or just like a few points on the game. Um, so I think that like the, these approaches were were making a, a lot of progress there. And kind of the, the the key insight of the first one, which is actually a little bit controversial, was to find the parts of the game where you're getting uh, where you're getting some making some progress, and then actually if you then die at those parts of the game, actually reset to that state and start kind of exploring in that region of the state space again. And so really trying to um, remembering, really trying to remember the visited states that are promising, returning to those promising states and then explore from it. Um, And so one of the reasons why it was uh, controversial is that they were using this reset ability to kind of go to a particular state that you had been to before. Um, And in in many real world contexts, that's of course not something that you can do, but if you're an Atari uh, game, that is something that you could conceivably do. And then the second paper uh, took a very similar approach, but they lifted this assumption by using an imitation learning approach to figure out, to kind of remember how to get back to that state. Mm, so both of these papers are uh, share in common that they, uh, they, they take advantage of ways to spend more time exploring difficult areas of uh, Montezuma's re- revenge, one using some kind of God mode reset capability and the other is just remembering how they got to given states and, and, you know, getting there before they start doing exploration. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I can see how the first one is controversial because in the, you know, in the paper, they're kind of report their scores. Uh, but if you keep doing these unnatural things like resetting and going to hard places and, and kind of accumulating, you know, more score, it doesn't seem to be comparable to the other scores that are reported for this game. Yeah. I think it's just worth briefly mentioning that there. I, I focused on a number of, I think, conceptual advances in in various approaches, and at the same time, there have been these fairly large efforts to try to use reinforcement learning and and other approaches to solve harder types of games. So StarCraft, um, there's a, a large team at DeepMind that was trying to uh, solve a version of StarCraft um, through reinforcement learning and also uh, and also imitation learning. And there was also a fairly large team at OpenAI that was trying to study reinforcement learning algorithms on the game Dota 2. And both of them made uh, quite notable progress in those settings. And I feel like I can't uh, I can't summarize 2019 without uh, at least making a very brief mention of those two results. Yeah, and OpenAI on the Dota front has been working on this for a while. This goes back into, back to 2018 at least, potentially earlier than that. Yeah, and I think that StarCraft actually also goes back into 2018 as well. I think that they've been they've been uh, long efforts. Uh, so one of the other things that we like to cover in these uh, AI Rewind segments is uh, more kind of practical, tangible advances in terms of new tools and libraries and open source projects, things like that. And uh, you had a number that that come to mind. Where do you where would you like to start? Yeah, so let's start with some of the libraries that have been made available. So in general, reinforcement learning, um, building reinforcement learning algorithms is challenging. And we're actually it's still in the stage where for, for deep reinforcement learning algorithms, many um, many algorithms can be, I guess, they, they will, I guess first, there's just so many design decisions when designing a reinforcement learning agent, such as when do you collect data? How do you collect data? Do you collect data in like at a per time step level versus like at an episodic level? Do you normalize your states and actions? Do you uh, 
Um, how do you kind of estimate your return? Uh, there's just all of these really tiny design decisions that that can actually make a pretty large difference on the result of the algorithm. And so having implementations of reinforcement learning algorithms that are trustworthy and and are actually kind of ready to use out of the box for, for different applications, I think is quite important for the advancement of, of reinforcement learning. For kind of specific algorithms, there have been a number of open source implementations um, released by the authors of those papers. And in many, way, in many times, those, those implementations are in some ways the most trustworthy because they're the ones that uh, should reproduce the, the results in the paper. Um, but there's also been a library called TF Agents or TensorFlow Agents that um, provides actually a platform of many different algorithms, many different reinforcement learning algorithms, um, and, and is, is trying to basically provide a kind of a unified uh, code interface and framework for running these different types of algorithms um, and making it e with the goal of making it easier for people to use these algorithms on their problems. And so how much of the 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 problem of getting an RL agent up and running does uh, does TF agent solve? Does it uh, get you all the way there? It, it it's always struck me with RL there are just so many moving pieces. You've got your simulation environment um, or your game uh, environment. You've got your agents. You've got to figure out your uh, optimization, your loss function. Um, how much of that does TF agents take care of for you? So if you want to use uh, an environment like OpenAI Gym, for example, then I think that you should be able to run it. Like It basically will solve everything for you. If your environment interface is different from Gym, then uh, then of course it uh, you'll need to do some some plumbing, essentially, to, to hook it up with that. Uh, and then also it doesn't solve the, the fact that if you have a new environment, um, these algorithms may not work out of the box on that environment because of you may need to tune it or maybe just that your problem um, is harder than the current kinds of reinforcement learning problems that we can solve. Mm -hmm. But if you want to reproduce one of the standard algorithms using a known environment like uh, like Jim, you should be able to do it fairly handily. I think you should be able to do it fairly handily with um, with this code base. Um, it's also worth mentioning. I think that this is from very late 2018, but there was also a um, a, uh, a a framework called dopamine that was trying to do something somewhat similar, but they were had a more narrow a narrow focus, which was to study Q learning algorithms, various types of Q learning algorithms for Atari games. So things like deep deep Q networks, um, distributional re reinforcement learning, prioritized experience replay, all the bells and whistles that you might want in your DQN agent. Specifically, looking at Atari games, that code base I think provided a very reliable implementation of of that kind of suite of algorithms, which with a, basically with a more narrow focus than TF agents. Uh, and you also mentioned PyTorch Hire. Uh, what's that all about? Yeah, so this isn't this isn't necessarily a reinforcement learning thing, um, but it's uh, it's a, a library that's been very useful for meta learning research. So I don't know how much of the details I want to get into with meta learning, but kind of the goal is to learn. Uh, I, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, um, the goal is to learn priors from previous experience in a way that allows you to learn very quickly, like learn with only a few data points for new tasks. And one very popular approach for Meta-learning is to perform a what's called a bi-level optimization, where you're actually embedding a an optimization process inside another optimization process. And Hire provides a way to perform these these higher order optimizations. Like for example, um, if you're embedding one optimization inside another, you have a second order optimization process. And this this library allows it makes it very easy for people to do that. Um, and I haven't used it personally myself, but my PhD students have been using it and have said uh, have said wonderful things about it. Is the idea with uh, bi-level optimization and uh, meta-learning that you're optimizing whatever problem you're trying to solve at one level and at another level you're optimizing the way you learn how to solve that problem? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And so higher isn't necessarily a meta-learning library, but it's a, a general bi-level optimization library, or, or is it more specifically geared towards meta-learning? It is a more general thing, but they also provide a number of optimizers that make it good specifically for meta-learning use cases. Okay. And, and maybe to further kind of, uh, you know, skirt this line of going too deep in on meta-learning, is there a, a classic 
problem setup or hello world of meta learning that uh, would help make it more concrete for folks that aren't familiar with it? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think that maybe one one very simple, like one kind of very standard problem in meta learning is can you learn um, to recognize characters of a new alphabet with a few examples? So can you, um, given like, I don't know, an example of five different handwritten digits, can you learn cl a classifier that can distinguish those those five handwritten digits? And the way that these meta-learning algorithms work is that they they take uh, handwritten digits from a number of different alphabets and languages and learn, at the lower level, they're trying to learn how to recognize distinguished digits from a particular alphabet. And at the higher level, they're trying to uh, change the way that that lower level learns uh, across alphabets in a way that makes it generalize faster and in a way that makes it allow it to learn from only five examples. Uh, so for example, if you, if you trained a deep neural network on five examples, it would pr probably overfit massively or not be able to learn very much. Mm -hmm. um, and these algorithms try to uh, actually train for the ability to generalize from a few examples by changing the way that neural networks are learning. Uh, so we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, OpenAI Gym and, and uh, some of these other simulation environments. There were also some new ones that were introduced this year. Absolutely. So, And I think that kind of maybe jumping ahead a little bit too much is one of my predictions for next year is that we're going to really need better environments for studying the kinds of problems that we care about. So if we, I think that if we care about things like generalization, like the ability to learn new tasks quickly, like the ability to solve um, longer horizon tasks, maybe with the use of demonstration data, then we need environments that uh, that allow us to actually evaluate those abilities in our algorithms. And there have been a number of environments that were introduced this year that tried to focus on different aspects of this. So, uh, for example, there is the AI habitat um, environment that was developed specifically for visual navigation. And it was specifically trying to target the setting where you want to learn how to navigate environments with photorealistic rendering, where basically you're dealing with images uh, with, where your observations are are highly realistic uh, images such that you aren't learning from these kind of really simple game graphics. So it's such that you're, you're actually studying both the vision aspect of the problem as well as the control aspect. The second environment is uh, the meta world environment, which is uh, an environment that one of my PhD students um, and, and some of my collaborators have been working on where we've been trying to study or allow ourselves to study generalization across tasks. So we create a, a benchmark of 50 manipulation tasks and simulation and with the hope of seeing if it can allow us to study, one, whether or not we can have algorithms learn across all of the tasks, and two, whether or not we have algorithms that can use, say, 45 of the tasks in a way that allows you to quickly learn new tasks, like the, ne the, the, the next five tasks. Um, and that was kind of targeting uh, meta-reinforcement learning algorithms that can learn how to learn from small amounts of data or small uh, small amounts of data for new tasks. The MineRL competition that I also mentioned is um, has been looking at uh, Minecraft uh, environments, which I think is a really interesting test bed for reinforcement learning methods because it's more open-ended. And they specifically, one of the things that they've been focusing on there was the ability to learn from example behavior and from demonstrations. And so they collected a very large data set of humans playing in these Minecraft environments with the hope of building reinforced learning agents that can use this data as well as their own data collected that they collected themselves in the environment in order to learn um, in order to learn complex uh, and long horizon skills. The Rexim that I mentioned is a, uh, a, a kind of a, a simulation platform for studying whether or not you can uh, learn a recommender system. And I think that one of the things that I really like about this is that it actually allows you to study um, a more real world problem that's quite different from things like games and things like robotics. Yeah, I was not expecting recommender systems to come up here. Yeah, and I, I think that people like in many ways, the the reinforcement learning community has been so focused on control, robotics and video games. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe we're overfitting to some of the challenges in those domains. And if we care about building reinforcement learning algorithms that are useful in a variety of settings, then we should be testing them on things like recommender systems. Mm -hmm. And I hope to see more of that too. Like you can imagine education, uh, as I mentioned before, medical decision-making. I think that there are a lot of potential applications of, of reinforcement learning where sequential decision-making, where, where you need to really uh, reason about uh, the effect of your actions on future states. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is uh, this Google research football environment. Uh, and this one, uh, I believe is specifically focusing on the ability to study multi-agent 
um, reinforcement learning mm-hmm. uh, in the context. Uh, and, and by football, for those of us that are Americans, they're referring to soccer. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually I did a an interview with one of the principals in this work uh, not too long ago, actually. This is relatively recent, uh, but it was episode 293 of the show, and it was with Olivier Bakken. Yeah, so those were the, all the environments that that I've seen come up that that look quite promising and, and really filling a gap that we, I think, don't have in our current environments. Well, you started kind of foreshadowing into your predictions there, uh, one of them being that we need to see even more of these types of environments. What are uh, some of the other things that you expect to see in the field uh, in the next year? And I guess we're going into 2020, so we could we could even talk about the next decade if you dare. <laughs> yeah, so I think that in addition to an increase in environments that will hopefully allow us to meaningfully study um, things like generalization and, and batch off policy RL instead of repurposing old environments for those things. Mm-hmm. I think we'll also start to see an increase in papers that study settings like batch off policy reinforcement learning. So I think that this year we saw a, a pretty big increase in, in, in people that are studying that. And I think that that's probably going to continue because that's really a problem that matters in the context of real world, uh, the real world deployment of reinforcement learning systems. So greater focus on batch off policy RL. Yeah. And then I also think that um, we didn't quite, this is the kind of one of the papers that I was going to mention on, on meta reinforcement learning and multitask reinforcement learning, which we didn't uh, quite get to cover um, in 2019. And I think that, I think that we're also really going to see an increase in papers that study this. So I think that in general, the the community has been fairly focused on like trying to solve individual tasks. And that's, I think in some ways that's actually been by nature of the environments. They're focusing on, let's learn one Atari game. Let's learn to run with this one agent in this one environment. And I think that a lot of people really do care about generalization. And we did actually see an increase in paper this, papers this year that were focusing on generalization um, to some degree. And I think that we'll see actually kind of the breadth of generalization that we try to study increase. Uh, and in particular, trying to study generalization across tasks, across goals, across objectives, um, such that we can move towards general purpose reinforcement learning agents rather than these very narrow um, and specialized agents. And do you have a sense for what that uh, will likely look like? Is it uh, analogous to what you were doing with the collaboration across institutions and uh, in the off-policy work where you were looking at multiple different robotic platforms and trying to train on different uh, environments simultaneously? Or is it some new, I don't know, some new training technique or something that results in greater generalization? Yeah, so I think that I would love for everyone to start studying robotics, but I think that in practice people won't be uh, that <laughs> or a little bit scared of robots, uh, and not not scared in terms of them being dangerous, but just scared of the the effort that goes into actually getting things working on a real robot in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in practice, what that mean will mean is that people will be studying uh, simulation agents, like simulated control agents, simulated robots, um, maybe simulate different like video game levels, for example. And studying how agents can learn across, um, can generalize across these video game levels that can generalize across reward functions of a, of a robot, for example. And I, yeah, I think that this, um, I think that basically the, the algorithms are, are mostly ready for this. I think that there's still advances to be had on just in terms of the ability for kind of just basic reinforcement learning algorithms to be stable, mm-hmm. to work well with images, et cetera. Um, but I think that many of the algorithms are are ready to take the jump towards these more complex settings where you need to be doing multiple things and not just one thing. And it may be, actually, I mentioned multitask RL, like the ability to do these different tasks, but it could also be doing tasks in sequence um, or kind of hierarchical reinforcement learning where you're performing, like picking up an object and then placing it into uh, a bin and then uh, taking that bin and putting it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that in general, people have been studying some of these problems for a long time, but I think that the uh, we'll actually start to see meaningful advances in these problems in the deep RL setting and in more um, more complex and challenging environments. Any other predictions? I think that the, the batch off policy, multitask RL and meta RL um, in environments are my main ones. I would guess that, I guess we also talked a fair bit about model-based and model-free. I think that people will continue to show interest in model-based methods and we'll also um, continue to see a number of hybrid methods that combine elements of model-based and model-free algorithms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, so I think that kind of the, the things that are, are going up will, will continue to actually maybe become <laughs> increasingly more popular. Um, things like batch off policy, model-based RL, and um, and meta-reinforcement learning and multitask reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, one of the things that I guess I'm really excited about is that is is that I think people will actually really start to meaningfully study generalization. And I think that this is something that's been overlooked for a, a very long time in reinforcement learning. You know, one of the the questions that I get all the time about uh, reinforcement learning, particularly deep reinforcement learning, is you know who's using it and for what. Uh, have you come across any notable kind of real world use cases for uh, deep RL this year? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that in general people aren't using it uh, because <laughs> these algorithms are are they work in in some contexts, but they are still a long ways away from being just like a plug and play thing, like like deep learning, for example, with neural networks, we like with Batstorm and and all the um, and like ResNets and stuff like that. We really figured out a way to kind of really be able to deploy these deep neural networks and in, uh, in a wide range of settings if you have enough data um, and can actually formulate your problem as a supervised learning problem. In reinforcement learning, I don't think that we're quite at that stage yet. Um, and there have been some some applications. So I know that there are some folks that use it actually for recommender systems. Uh, mm-hmm. So like Craig uh, Boutillier, for example, at Google is uh, is someone who's notably has been studying uh, reinforcement learning in these sorts of settings. Uh, there was also one example, I think a couple of years ago of using reinforcement learning for um, like data center power management. Um, but I haven't really seen that, seen that really expand. Yeah, at least from from what I've seen, I think it's also hard to say because it's not necessarily pe- people aren't always public about the sorts of things that they're the sorts of algorithms they're using in mm-hmm. industrial applications. But my guess is that they really aren't being used um, much in real world applications. One of the things that makes uh, this particular question challenging is you'll see a lot of people talking about using reinforcement learning, but when you go under the covers, it's not deep reinforcement learning. It's like single step kind of traditional. Uh, reinforcement learning, uh, which is different. <laughs> yeah, I guess one other thing worth mentioning is that there's a a startup company by um, uh, led by Peter Beal uh, and others that is looking at robotic uh, automation, and they're looking at deep imitation learning and deep reinforcement learning for doing this. Um, mm-hmm. That's covariance. Covariant, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't know, um, they are very public about the the kinds of techniques that they're using um, or the applications. I recently saw the Mark Hammond, who has been on this show, he founded a company called Bonsai that was acquired by Microsoft. They're still doing interesting stuff with RL. Like I think it is happening, but uh, in terms of, uh, to your point, kind of public, uh, detailed, case studies about what folks are doing, uh, they are difficult to come by. Yeah. And like Osaro is another startup company that is looking at deep reinforcement learning, but they, um, I don't know they're like, if they're actually using it for their, for the use cases or not. And there's also, I, I guess another kind of maybe more real world example is that they're, but, but not deep is that there was some work, um, I think a couple years ago by, uh, Joel Panu looking at reinforcement learning for, uh, for um, brain stimulation for seizures to try to um, stimulate the brain in a pattern that used less stimulation than kind of the standard thing while also still preventing um, preventing seizures. Uh, but that was using, that was by no means using uh, deep reinforcement learning. It was just using um, reinforcement learning with smaller models because they didn't have enough data in order to deploy these techniques uh, with deep networks. Cool. Any uh, Anything else we should keep our eyes peeled for? in 2020? I, I think that that's it. I'm, I'm excited to see what um, what's to come. And, and I think that there, I guess maybe one other thing worth mentioning is that there's been increasingly um, other labs, uh, other research labs that have really been entering the reinforcement learning space. And it's been exciting to see that people are getting more interested in, in the problem setting. Uh, labs that were traditionally doing um, things like supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And I guess I mentioned this also at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Any particular ones that folks should be uh, keeping an eye on? I mean, there are the, you know, DeepMind, OpenAI, or, you know, traditional folks that have been publishing a lot in this space. Certainly yourself and Sergey Levine and Peter Abiel and, and many others, uh, you know, academic labs. Who are some of the new ones that might be worth taking a look at? 
Yeah. So in addition to the folks that you mentioned, some of the kind of existing ones um, are like the Google Brain team, in addition to, to DeepMind, of course, mm -hmm. um, and uh, folk labs at McGill in Montreal, like Joanna Precup and Joel Panu, um, folks at Oxford, like uh, uh, Shimon Whiteson, uh, and then also folks at Michigan, like uh, Satinder Singh and Hung Lok Lee. Uh, and then also at Stanford is also Emma Brunskill. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think that these folks study different aspects of, of the problem. For example, Emma has been looking at um, applications like education and really kind of human impact settings and really actually focusing on like off policy methods, for example, while um, Satinder's group and Hunglock's group are often looking at more video game applications. Um, and Joelle has done kind of a, at, at McGill has done a variety of different applications. So I think that it's been interesting to see how different methods are using different approaches. And then in terms of, of newer labs, I think that it's hard to, to list them, uh, but I think that some some maybe people who are probably rather recognizable in the deep learning community and that are starting to do more reinforcement learning are folks like Joshua Bengio um, and Jan LeCun. Uh, Jan is more on the model-based reinforcement learning side of things. And Joshua, I think, has been, been looking at representation learning in the context of embodied agents. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also folks like Jimmy Baugh, for example, um, has had some interesting work in uh, in model-based reinforcement learning recently. And then also uh, Tang Yu Ma at Stanford has, um, Jimmy is at, is at University of Toronto, and then uh, Tang Yu Ma at Stanford has done a lot of really great work on theoretical deep learning uh, and has been starting to move in towards, towards the kind of looking at the theoretical aspects of uh, deep reinforcement learning. Well, Chelsea, uh, that was a ton of stuff to cover. Thanks so much for you know, doing this show for helping us get caught up on RL and uh, giving us a peek into what's coming next. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.